0: Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Brad Warner is an ordained Zen teacher and author of a number of books, including Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, and There Is No God and He Is Always With You. His most recent book, Don't Be a Jerk, is an entertaining a reverent yet thoroughly insightful paraphrase and commentary on an 800-year-old Zen Buddhist text, the Shobo Genzo, by the Japanese Zen monk Dogen. Brad is also a writer for Suicide Girls, an active blogger, a bass player for a hardcore punk band group called Zero Defects, star of the movies Shoplifting from American Apparel and Zombie Bounty Hunter M.D., as well as a director of the film, Cleveland Screaming, a documentary about the hardcore punk scene in Akron and Cleveland in the mid-1980s. Brad, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, and uh, so uh, I don't want to delay. I want to get right into it. And okay. um, I always like to, in the show, get a, a bit of a background, and... Mm-hmm. Some of your writing is autobiographical, so uh, people who may have read Hardcore Zen or Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate, for instance, maybe the most autobiographical one, would know something of your history. But um, maybe you can take us back and reflect on some formative experiences, uh, maybe your first interest in Zen or, uh, or your years as a, uh, doing the punk rock scene in Akron, wherever you'd like is good with me. Just want to kind of get a bit of a background
1: yeah I'll try to do the short version uh I get that i get asked that ask that same question a lot i um I got into I got interested in Zen when I was about eighteen or nineteen years old, and at the time I was a I was the bass player for this hardcore punk band called Zero Defects, as you mentioned, and uh, we didn't have any great success, but we did have a song called "Drop the A Bomb on Me," which was included in a lot of uh, punk compilations, and uh, that are st- one of them's still in print. So uh, so we still have some notoriety among the fans of that sort of music. Uh, I got into punk punk because I was looking for something kind of real uh, and direct and meaningful. And I got into Zen for the same reason. I was a little disappointed with the punk rock scene after after I'd been in it for a while because it kind of degenerated. It kind of, uh, a lot of outsiders- who weren't involved in the beginning got interested, and they were slamming around and trying to break people's heads, and it just wasn't any fun anymore. But uh, when I was introduced to to Zen, I thought, well, this is the most punk rock thing I've ever seen." in in the in the sense, in the sense that it was really direct, and it didn't it didn't uh, it wasn't enough just to question society and question the outside world and all this stuff. You had to question yourself. You had to kind of go even deeper with the same kind of penetrating gaze. So uh, I studied with this teacher in America named Tim McCarthy for several years and then moved to Japan, not to study Zen, but because I was broke, uh, put out a bunch of records as uh, under my, under the name Dementia 13, I had this sort of neo-psychedelic band project going on that didn't make me any money, but, but got some good critical acclaim at the time and I moved to Japan taught English for a year, then I got a job for a company called Tsuburaya Productions, which was founded by the guy who invented Godzilla, and we made these kind of Godzilla-esque, sort of Godzilla knockoff movies and TV shows uh, in Japan. And when I was working for that company, I met a Japanese Zen master named Gudo Nishijima, who, uh, who I hung around and followed around for a number of of years until one day he kind of took me aside and said, I want to make you my Dharma heir, which is a big deal in the Zen world. It means you're like the equal to the teacher and you can teach on your own and all this stuff. And I thought that was a crazy idea. And at first I didn't want to do it. But uh, after about a year of hemming and hawing, I came back to him and said, "Okay, let's let's do this thing. I'll be ordained. I got ordained, uh, wrote a book uh, called Hardcore Zen uh, then I moved back to America, and ever since I've been back, I came back to the U.S. in 2004, and I've been traveling, uh, leading retreats, teaching. I go all over the place. Uh, go to I've been going to Europe every year for the past six or seven years to do retreats and teachings and lectures and whatnot over there. Um, and that's the short version.
0: Okay, okay, great. So I, I'm curious, I think... I only remember reading about it in, in one of the books. Um, and so I kind of wanted to ask you this question, which is, you know, you know, for me, I, I had this musical practice, uh, mm. before I had a meditation practice for many, many years. I mean, I started playing drums and percussion. Uh, I don't even remember a time when I didn't have sticks in my hand. I mean, there mm. there was, there's a photo of me when I was probably two years old behind a little drum set, you know? I, so I just, I don't ever remember a time without it, but but I didn't uh, sort of discover a meditation practice until, um, well, I was introduced to Zen Buddhism by the writings of John Cage when I was in college. So oh, yeah. I, I, it would be fun to talk about that. But um, anyway, the, I'm kind of digressing here. The the yeah. point, the thing that I wanted to ask you was yeah. the the music, the musical practice, right? Like for you, uh, how did 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 the two come together for you in any way the the Zen practice and the musical practice in any in any sort of visceral or interesting ways?
1: Yeah, I think so. It was uh, it was it was something that I discovered uh, playing music that there, the, and you would know this, I'm sure, since you're a player yourself. You get into this kind of it's really hard to describe because there's no real word for it. I think musicians have a you know some kinds of, of Little private words for it, but you get into this kind of feeling where you lose yourself, uh, and 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 people who don't who've never had that experience sort of think it's a metaphor or something, I, I guess. But but you really completely lose yourself and just become guided by this this music, which transcends even the people who are playing it, and and this can even happen in in hardcore punk. It can happen in any style of of music, and I, and I think it probably happens. In, in all styles of music and all styles of art, uh, probably in sports, probably for a lot of people in, in other activities, which I'm, I'm not even aware of, but it's this kind of transcendent experience. And I think we tend to believe that those experiences are somehow uh, special and extraordinary, but the one of the things the practice of zen leads you to and and the philosophy is uh, that these these transcendent moments aren't really extraordinary they're actually your normal condition peeking through an otherwise confused and muddled uh, sort of consciousness that we all we all have and we all partake in as part of 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 the societies that we belong to all human societies have a lot of problems and and because of that we we get uh, overwhelmed and don't realize how how connected we we truly are so uh so yeah i i really connected with that uh, that to the to the meditation practice and the music
0: it was interesting i had uh kazuaki tanahashi on my show uh back i guess it was over the summer mm-hmm. and um he asked me a question that I thought was interesting, which was, you know, kind of what I asked you, how does, how did I feel like Zen practice informed my, my musical practice? And hmm? for me, I, and I sort of want to get your response to this for me, um, I drew a connection between the actual practice, you know, there's, there's out untold hours of technical practice required hmm. to, you know, play an instrument well. <laughs> and, when I first started going to the, the Zen Center, Galen uh told me, Well, you already have a practice. You know, this is just an extension of this practice that you've learned. Yeah. And and so I started sort of making connections there between the 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 physicality of, of sitting and, and the, the watching the mind, um, and making connections between that kind of mm, that activity and the uh-huh. activity of, of practicing a snare drum, a very simple sort of technical exercise. To me it it it, it just came right, right together
1: i think it's all the same thing it's just another it's just another way to approach it i think the one thing my um my teacher used to say he, uh, Gudo Nishijima started off before he became a Zen teacher. He was uh, in high school a track runner, and he was apparently quite good at it. Uh, and and he would often relate his uh, Zen practice to to what he felt when running track. So it would it, it's it's a kind of another way in. But he he the other thing he said about Zen practice is. Uh, People would ask him, "Well, why don't you just uh, run or, or or do? What's the difference, you know, between these other practices?" And he would say, "Zen is much easier." And I, when I, when I first, yeah, when I first heard it, my reaction was the same. Yeah, like, right, a lot easier. <laughs> um, but but really, if I think about it, in my own case, you know, the, every time we want to play a gig, you'd have to carry all these amplifiers upstairs or downstairs and deal with the you know these horrible promoters who were doing your show and 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 the the, the crowds who would be drunk and unruly and you'd have to kind of make your way through the violence and the and the uh, staying up till four in the morning to to get paid and load out and all that stuff so in, in comparison uh zen is is pretty easy <laughs> you know <laughs> you just sit on a cushion yeah. and and uh and look into yourself for a while. So so I think I think he's right. I think he, he, that, that, that it is easier.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. Um, well, I want to talk about your writing and uh, in your books. And the first book I read of yours was uh, the one called Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate. And, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well besides having a great title uh, yeah in that book you you talk amongst other things about illness and subsequent passing of your mother going yeah. through a divorce uh, changing careers or changing jobs and when I it's funny because when I read it I was actually going through a divorce and not too long after that my father got a uh, cancer and and passed away so yeah. finding and reading your book could not have been more perfectly timed in in that regard and um, and then after that I, I said wow I have to read more so I read the next one I read was Hardcore Zen. And I think uh, I, I got to meet you here in, when you were in Houston, one of the times you were here. And I think I said this to you, but I'm gonna say it again. Okay. Um, and that's like, I felt like in Hardcore Zen, you were talking directly to me. and I've never read a, a book like that, where I felt like the person was just talking directly to me and saying, Listen, get your act together, you know, here here are some yeah. things you need to start paying attention to. And and that was the book that really got me seriously interested in in actually starting a meditation practice. And um and so I just want to thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And um so I, I thought it would be fun to yeah. I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? No, you're
1: you're welcome, and I, I, it's it's really nice to hear that. That book, Zen Wrapped in Karma, is uh, is still my slowest selling book, oh. but it's the <laughs> one I feel strongest about. Maybe I, you know, I always feel strongest about the new one, the one that's just finished. But but if I overview the career, that's the one that took the most to, to write because it really, you know, and. Um, and I thought, well, you know, this will either be a blockbuster or nobody will read it. And I guess it's more like nobody will read it, but but not nobody. the The few people who have read it have had uh, really strong reactions, and it's really nice to hear that,
0: yeah, it's it totally resonated with me. and uh, and and it was just one of these things that I just happened upon. I mean, I was, Buying and reading all the Zen books I could, uh, you know, I could get my hands on at the time, and um, I ran across it in a bookstore in Austin. Actually, huh. uh, had not known about it or anything, and just saw it on the shelf. It's called Book People. If you oh, ever yeah. go to Austin, it's a really cool, no, I, cool bookstore. I was just
1: there. I was just in Austin. And they still have it on the shelf. I'm, I'm amazed. Yeah. it's, it's uh, about five years old now. Yeah, yeah. They still have a little uh, staff pick uh, thing in front of it. Yeah,
0: great. So I thought it would be fun to kind of go through some of the things that I've learned from reading some of your books. So some of these come from Hardcore Zen and and from some of the other books as well. So if you don't okay. if you don't mind, I thought it would be interesting to sort of uh, read uh, uh, something that I learned or a quote and then get your response to it. <laughs>
1: Okay. That's fine. You know, somebody, I I had another interview recently and, and uh, the guy brought something up from, from actually from Don't Be a Jerk, my most recent book, and I didn't recognize it. So (laughs) (laughs) I kind of tend to write these books, you know, I get very, very intense uh, about, about writing them, you know, I'm like completely focused on it. And then once they're done, I, I, they're they're over, you know, and it's and then then six or whatever months later when they come out, people start asking me about them, and I have to go, oh uh, yeah, I think I-
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I think these will all be pretty straight ahead, but it will okay. be fun nevertheless, okay, the first one is, and these are like things that I learned, but also quotes, so you can kind of take them both ways, all right, so the first right. one is there are no perfect situations, and it's the it's the kind of if only, uh, situation. So if, if I only had, you know, fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. Yeah. And, and I think he wrote, it's, it's as if we're afraid to really commit to this moment because a better one might come along later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're like, uh, we're like Seinfeld and, and he'd always, he'd always, uh, reject his, you know, each girlfriend because, uh, there was some little flaw with her and he thought there was going to be, you know, this this perfect mate was going to come along. I think that's actually something people who study dating patterns in in the United States these days say is a, a phenomenon. But it's, I don't think it's restricted to to dating issues. It's it goes it goes across the board for everything. And it, and I think it's especially. Uh, yeah I don't know what it was like in ancient times but I imagine these days with so many choices and so many things available to all of all of us and, and how easily everything comes to us we uh, w- we're really kind of gonna try everything and never settle and and, um, and never settle into this moment because we're you know there, there could be you know great things you know, magical things happening, you know, I, I, I travel, like I said, I travel across the world all the time. And I, and, and every time I do, I think, my God, this is something, you know, I'm doing something right now that takes four, you know, 10 hours, you know, to fly across the Atlantic or whatever. And, and you think this, this was something that would took, take a lifetime for people in the past. And yet we just do it like it's nothing, you know? Yeah. So, so we have so much of that. And we have this kind of, if only, if only sort of feeling that, that if we, you know, people make those vision boards and and things that because they think if they if they get the things that are on the vision boards, then they'll be then they'll be happy. Then my life will be complete. And and you're missing out on so much of of what's really going on uh, w- when you do that. And and uh, I mean, it's okay to have you know some kind of. Uh, everybody's got desires, and everybody's got dreams that they want to fulfill and I do too everybody's got it and that's fine but you 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 it it helps if you can move beyond this mindset that says if i have that then it'll be fixed uh because that's never true yeah uh you, you can you can watch your your own life and watch how that happens uh, and, and and so many of us do that and yet the next Little bubble comes along that we want to chase, and and we're off chasing it again, uh, even though we know that it didn't work the last hundred and fifty times, <laughs> uh, you know. So why is it going to work this time? Uh, it, it's it's just kind of a, but we do it, and everybody does it, and I I get I get caught up in it too, you know. Everybody does.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I think the thing that I I guess the thing that I learned, uh, the thing that it showed me when I when I came across this idea is that I just became a lot more aware of it.
1: Oh, yeah. And there's, really important.
0: Yeah, there's something that you said in um, in the new book, in the chapter called Uji, which I definitely want to talk about that chapter in, in a moment, but it's, it's kind of apropos to what we're talking about here. Um, this is something that I deal with with my university students all the time, uh, you know, sort of tying it back to musical practice, this, this concept. Right. And that is like a student is in the practice room, for instance... And, and I, t- I say this to my students all the time, and I, it, I always get, you know, just nods of recognition that, okay, you're in the practice room, you're, you're doing this particularly um, boring or tedious technical practice or whatever it is, it's difficult. And you're thinking, gosh, I'd just rather be at home on the couch, hanging out, yeah. you know, chilling out. And then, so sure enough, you, you decide, okay, enough of this. You go home, you sit on the couch. The second you hit the couch... In your brain, you're thinking, oh, "I really should be practicing. I really got, I really <laughs> yeah. got to get that thing together." So you can't, you yeah. can't be present in either place. You can't yeah. be there in the practice room, and you can't enjoy your downtime. And uh, that sort of goes with this, the concept of the "if only" thing.
1: Yeah, it's real difficult. It's, it's, it. This is, uh, this is a, this is a problem we have, and I, I think we're kind of. Oh, in a way, built to have that problem. I don't know if that's exactly right. But we we as human beings, our evolutionary advantage, which has enabled us to create all of this stuff, including the computers everybody's using to listen to this podcast and the whole bit, is, um, is the... Uh, Th- that's our only natural defense, you know in in the wild and whatever. And so we've built it up to incredible uh, degrees and we have inadvertently become a kind of a slave to it um, and and, what we really need to do, I think, is to be able to step back and and find out how to be just where we are at any given moment. But that's easier said than done. and And this is why I think the meditation practice is so valuable, because it forces you for a certain period of time every day, if you do it every day, to... To just be doing this one thing, which is the most incredibly tedious and boring thing you could possibly do. You know, you're basically really, you're sitting on your ass doing nothing, uh, but really doing nothing in a very intense way, you know, much more than just sort of chilling out on the couch or whatever. Uh, you're, you're actually getting very uh, deeply into doing nothing. And I think that's uh, that that's really a significant thing.
0: Yeah. Okay, here's another one. Uh, it sort of also ties to the musical practice. It's the mm-hmm. path that is important, not the goal.
1: yeah yeah well that's uh, that's true. I, I think somebody better than me said that <laughs> particular quote um, but it's it's uh, it's true and and we we miss that out the one of the hardest things to explain to anyone, uh, is the idea that Zen is a goalless practice? It has no goal, and it's hard to explain because it was hard for me myself to to finally get it, and I and I feel like even now, after thirty some years of practice, I still have to remind myself that this really is. Honestly, honest to God, it's a goalless practice and you keep wanting to have some kind of a, uh, something that's going to you know, be your great reward at the end of it, your, your enlightenment experience or whatever it is that you imagine is going to happen but uh but what you're really trying to do is sit without any goal in mind and and some people will will counter you by saying well if you have a goal to have no goal then it's still a goal but but there's a difference there's a there's a real difference between having a goal to not have a goal uh and having any other goal in mind and and in practice you you find that out you know to to just set aside any any attempt to to try and escape from from whatever it is that's going on, that's a, that's a really noble thing to do. I think, and, and it really helps.
0: Okay, here's another one. This one, this is one that I that I try to practice from time to time, which is practicing having no preferences. And the quote <laughs> from you is, "We harbor some inexplicable fear that if we start to enjoy everything about life without picking and choosing, we might cease to exist."
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, whenever I write something like that, I'm referring to myself, you know, I think, I think, I think I had a tendency when I started writing to, to not make that clear and it would make people think I was accusing them, accusing the audience of some sort of failing or something, but it, but it's really just me. And, and that's, and that's it. You, you, um, you kind of define yourself according to your preferences. You know, you you your musical preferences, if that's your uh, thing, your sexual preferences have a have a lot to do with it. You know, there's there's a whole uh, realm of of preferences that we have that we define ourselves by, and uh, and if you if you let. Go of that, it won't change you. You'll still have the same musical tastes and sexual preferences and whatever else you had before it, before you you learn to let go of those things. But you you stop defining yourself by them. And that opens up a whole world of, of possibilities that weren't there uh, before before you Started letting go of those things, and I think that's that's important. But but there's a fear attached to it because you, because you're kind of told in subtle ways over and over that if you let go of that sense of of self, you're going to disappear. But uh, but I've tried, and 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 I haven't disappeared. <laughs> so I'll just you know I'll just say that.
0: Yeah, one of the ways that I work with this one is. Um you know, when it comes time to choose a movie with my wife or what's for dinner, you (laughs) know, uh, I just say, you know what, tonight, whatever it is, you know, uh, no preferences. Uh, Well, that's
1: the trouble with Netflix. You have too many choices (laughs) and you can't can't decide any of them, so... uh,
0: Right. (laughs) Okay, let's do one more. Um, Uh Okay, this one is good. Uh, We draw imaginary distinctions between big issues or big problems and little ones.
1: Yeah, that was I, I. I think I remember what I was thinking of when I wrote that. I, I there was a there was a tendency, and 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 I have to be careful here because I don't want to sound like I'm putting this down. But there was this movement in in Buddhism called engaged Buddhism, which I think is is not a bad thing at all. But it was about trying to move your Buddhist practice out into the world and take on issues, you know, political issues and social issues and all of that. And I think I think all of that is is great. But there is a tendency, I think, among a lot of people who get involved in such things, and I have a lot of friends who, who are really deeply involved in these sort of things, to kind of focus on these big issues and make them into a kind of an obsession to where to where they must solve the, you know, hunger in Africa or whatever it is. And uh, and they're too big. They're too big for any person to to really uh, ever solve. And so I think you always end up feeling like a little bit of a failure even, you know, no matter how much you do. And so one good thing to realize if you're that sort of a person is thats is that there is – there are there are small issues there are little tiny issues that matter just as much and and that's hard to see because they're not going to be covered on cnn or fox news or whoever you're you're watching but but that little that little something that you do for your mom or 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 this little activity you do by smiling at the person who's who's in a grouchy mood at the grocery store or these little things they they actually have a tremendous sort of ripple effect and if you can go through life just doing those little things the big issues you can still work on them just as much as you ever did but they also that also affects the big issues in ways that you'll never uh, you'll never be able to understand but uh, but it does i really believe it does
0: great Well, let's uh, talk about your new book, Don't Be a Jerk, which uh, I mentioned in the intro is uh, paraphrasing and a commentary on Dogen's uh, Shobogenzo. So how did you uh, come to write this book?
1: Well, uh, the genesis of it came about when a friend of mine bought this book called God is Disappointed in You. And and maybe one day I'll hear from the author of this book because I keep mentioning it. But uh, it was a book where the author tried to paraphrase the entire christian bible in his own words and and it's a kind of a funny book and the title indicates what the theme of the book is which is he he felt that the theme of of the bible is god is disappointed in you you know (laughs) and uh but but it's not but it's a respectful retelling and uh, the friend of mine who bought the book suggested that I try to do that with Shobogenzo because she's aware that I always write about Shobogenzo and and at first I thought that's that sounds like a funny idea but it also sounds completely impossible uh, because the bible is a collection of mostly narrative stories with bits of philosophy uh, stuck into you know in between the lines, whereas Shobo Genzo is the opposite. It's uh, it's almost all philosophy with just a few narrative sections, which are you know largely not that significant. Even you could probably cut a, cut a lot of them out and still get the same book. But um, but I decided to try anyway and to see uh, to see what would happen. And after working on a, a couple of chapters, I thought, well, this. This might be something I could turn into a book, and that's and that's how it came out. Um, I wasn't sure when I started that it was even going to be worth <laughs> worth the trouble because it was a lot of trouble to write. This book uh, took a lot more study and, oh God, scholarship. I I can't even. I've seen some reviews that are coming around calling it a, a great work of scholarship, and I suppose in a way it is. But I don't feel like I'm a scholar of Dogen. I just. I just had a stack of books <laughs> that I that I sat around reading and trying to figure out, you know, and, and then trying to put the results of my research into into a writing.
0: Well, um, let's see. Which I guess the thing that I would be interested to hear you speak about is this um the chapter called Uji uh, okay. or Psychedelic Dogen. Um Yeah. And this is a this is a a concept that I had I'd run across. Oh, I guess it was maybe a year or more ago, and mm-hmm. uh, I had this commission to write a little snare drum piece for mm-hmm. concert solo performance. And so, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with this thing. And uh, as a performer, I've I've been interested in pieces that involve spoken text. So I play mm-hmm. the snare drum, but also speak some texts. And God, so, that sounds hard. <laughs> well, it's... It- it's challenging for sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I made this little piece. I, I'd come across this concept of Uji. I'd been reading some Dogen um, translation online. I'm sorry to say I don't remember uh, whose translation it was uh, that mm-hmm. made me decide that this would make a really interesting piece for snare drum and spoken text. But anyway, I made this little piece incorporating some of Dogen's text to so this concept of Uji and, and some of my own and have played it quite a bit. Now, I always get a really great reaction from the audience from this piece. It really made Mm-hmm. them think you know and uh, I wish I'd had your translation <laughs> because it's great but um you know anyway I, I'm totally fascinated by this concept so it's quite a long chapter and a quite of uh confusing and and uh intricate one uh, yeah but and the concept itself is pretty uh difficult but what what do you say about uji
1: well uji means being time and it's a it's a common it's not a common word in modern Japanese, but my understanding uh, from my teacher is it was a fairly common way of saying sometimes in in ancient Japanese. It, uh, the word now in a, in modern Japanese is toki doki, we don't say uji. But um, it was a it, it was a way of saying sometimes, but dogen uh, a guy, he was interested in wordplay, and he kind of does a lot of puns in his writing. And he noticed that the characters, the Chinese characters, to write out the word sometimes are being and time. So so Uji is being and time, uh, two Chinese characters. And working from that concept, he is trying to explain the idea of being and time as being the same thing like two aspects of the same thing so we don't we don't usually think of it like that we usually imagine that we are we are sort of static beings who move through time because part of our our sense of self is tied up in that a lot of our sense of self is tied up in that idea and we experience things like that you know my favorite example is you listen to a piece of music and a piece of music to me is a fascinating sort of way to experience art because at any given second you you aren't hearing the whole piece you can't possibly hear the whole piece you know whereas you could stand back from a painting and open your eyes and see the entire painting as a single object you can never ever do that with a piece of music and that's uh so so anytime you're experiencing a piece of music you're experiencing time as as part of as part of the uh the piece so so you're you 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 imagine that you are a static object who's moving forward or backwards. If you're a science fiction nut, uh, through time, uh, but Dogen is saying that this is this is a kind of illusion that we that we are. Time is kind of. Uh, the same thing as we are so we are we are things that are there are time you know and it's a, it's very weird because yeah. we're, we're we're divorced uh, from this concept of, of time it's it, it's fascinating there's a there's a show that's uh, I think it's on Netflix, since we mentioned it earlier, uh, it, called "How We Got to Now," and one of the interesting episodes is is uh, about the idea of time and how the uh, contemporary idea of time came about. And there's a whole story to it that uh, that's really uh, that's really fascinating. and And Dogen is living eight hundred was living eight hundred years ago, and is living eight hundred years ago if we want to get freaky about it. <laughs> uh, and and at that point that sort of concept of time was just starting to come in the more more or less modern concept of time which is probably why he he started writing that because clocks were starting to become a thing you know and and, and all of this but it wasn't really till the the 19th and 20th century that we got our our you know fully modern concept of time and it's useful but it's ultimately uh, wrong and it's leading us in, in wrong directions because we're we're misunderstanding it. Uh and and the the problem is we don't really have words yet for the, the right way to understand it, but but uh he's trying to find those words by mashing together this word, you know, Uji, which, you know, as I said, was a colloquial say colloquial way of saying sometimes. Yeah. Uh and 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 pulling apart the the fact that it means being and time and saying that time and being are actually uh, ultimately the same thing so I probably sound like an acid trip now which is <laughs> which is fine but that's you know, there, I am not on drugs I just have a, <laughs> a little bit of an allergy
0: <laughs> there's a um in in that chapter he, he talks a little bit about um he talks about how we experience time and one you know that's that's a really interesting part of this whole discussion which is and everyone has experienced this uh you know when time seems to drag on and on and minutes yeah. go by like you know uh seems like hours and then we've all experienced uh time that just flies by and is gone a second you know Yeah. Uh, so our experience of time is not the same as uh you know sort of quantifiable way of looking at time like yeah. you I mentioned clocks i mean that's a, the clock will always uh show us time in the same way but our experience of it is fluid and i, I thought that was an interesting concept as well yeah
1: i I think it's real interesting because one of the first things that sort of freaked me out about Nishijima Roshi's talking is when he got onto that particular subject and he started saying things like that subjective, we usually think that subjective view of time where it seems to go slower and faster is wrong and what's really happening is what the clock says. But, uh, but Nishijima Roshi would say that, no, that's not, that's not really true. The, the subjective view is actually closer to the truth of what's going on, so that everybody has a slightly different time and, and we're experiencing it uh, differently. I, I also think the, the idea of, you know, we have this idea that it's a good thing for time to fly by fast, and sometimes I wonder, why is that a good thing? Because, you know, we want... We want to have as long a life as possible. So maybe we should actually focus more on those boring moments when time seems to drag on. That might be actually the most pleasant thing if we could try to to get really into it. And if you go to a Zen retreat, it feels like, you know, even a a short one, like the one my group is doing this coming weekend, it's three days. It'll feel to the people who participate in it like it lasts, those three days last forever. you know, but, but that's a good thing. (laughs) You know, that's not a bad thing.
0: Yeah. Something that, uh, it's interesting. You bring up this idea of retreat and Zen. Um, uh, I haven't yet experienced one of these and, and Mm -hmm. part of it is, um, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous that I, that I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm a little bit like, I'm not sure if I can do it, you know? And, uh, I mean, I'll do it one of these days I'll, I'll do some retreats, but, um, I haven't I haven't done it yet, you know, and uh, something about not be, not being quite brave enough to do it or being afraid of failure. I'm not really sure what it is, but uh, but I haven't been able to do one of those yet.
1: It's you know it's not it's it's probably not nearly as hard as you imagine because I it took me about ten years of steady practice before. I felt ready to go on a retreat. I kind of—it wasn't really an opportunity to, for the first few years, I practiced anyway because I was living in rural Ohio, and my my teacher just didn't have the infrastructure to to set up a you know a full on retreat. So it wasn't until I got to Japan that I actually experienced one, which which is comparatively short. My teacher refused to do retreats that were more than three days long, but it's not it's not that. Um, it's not that hard. You, I had a lot of experiences in retreats where I felt like, oh, my God, this is terrible. I'm never going to make it through. You know, when you're just sitting there uh, thinking, oh, my God, the person who's supposed to ring the bell has died. I have to get <laughs> up. I have to go, you know, tell everybody that he's died because there's no way <laughs> this has been, you know, anything less than four and a half hours that we've been sitting still. Um and then the bell rings, and you look at your watch and go, "No, it was forty minutes, just like every other period." <laughs> uh, but 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 it's serious. You'll 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 feel like oh, this is this is there's no way this this could possibly be more <laughs> torturous. But but in a way, it's it's um it's it, it gets very interesting because you're you're starting to you start to uh, once you once you get over that period of resistance, which I think is almost inevitable. I've never really heard of anybody who, who's managed to avoid it. But once you get past that period of resistance, you find that something else opens up and that those, those moments of, of sitting silently by yourself in this quiet room with nothing going on are, are incredibly interesting. You know, just just more interesting than the most interesting thing you could possibly imagine, uh, and and it's very hard to to really explain to somebody who hasn't done it exactly why that is. It, I, I I don't know why it just is really interesting. You know, mm. you never know what's gonna what's gonna happen, even though you're just sitting still.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about meditation practice, and this kind of ties back to your book as well. Um, you know until until i started a meditation practice it was all just sort of this philosophical uh, idea and yeah. you know and even in even in pop culture there's this kind of references to oh that was so zen or or this kind of idea so, yeah. and, and so i feel like there's also an image in again in popular culture that that meditation is this very peaceful and serene activity. And I I certainly thought that's what it was before I actually started trying this. And, uh, I was surprised at two things. One at how active and busy my mind was. I I was, I was not expecting that. And two, how, uh, how physical the meditation practice is. It's, it's a very physical kind of practice. And, um, in in the new book, there's a chapter called "How to sit down and shut up and and you have this great analogy for meditation um, that it's like surfing for your mind oh yeah, yeah yeah could could you sort of reflect on this idea that uh, of well I guess of all the things I mentioned about the sort of busyness of the mind or the physicality of meditation any of those things yeah.
1: Well, I think the thing about surfing, if I remember, as I say, I don't remember my own books. I think it's when I was uh, writing about uh, Eisbach, which is this river uh, that runs through Munich in Germany. I, I've had a couple of books translated into German, and so for the past 6 years or so I've gone every year and done a bunch of retreats and things in Germany and one of the places I always visit is Munich because uh the, one of the people who helps organize my my visits there lives in Munich so I'm always there but if in 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 central munich there's a bridge that goes over this river called the Eisbach which just means ice brook uh and on this river is this standing wave. I'm not sure why it's there. There must be something under the water that causes the water to do this kind of jump. But people have for the past, you know, who knows how long, have gone surfing on this on this little standing wave. But the thing is when you, um, I've sat there and watched them surf. I've never tried it myself. But, uh, even the best surfers can only stay on this wave for about a minute. And it's really the most uh, predictable wave you could imagine. It's not like a wave on the ocean because it's always the same. But even the even the most master surfers can only stay up there for a little while uh, because because everything changes. But But the thing is they they stay on there for a little while and then they fall off. Uh, fall back in the water, they pick up their surfboard, they go back onto the shore and they get in line and wait for their next turn to go surfing. And I thought that's a great metaphor for what happens in meditation because a lot of us feel like we failed at meditation as soon as our mind starts getting overactive or we're thinking about food or sex or money or whatever you know other distracting thing is going on in our minds and we go, oh no, I can't do this. But that's, that's the way it goes for everybody, for even the greatest masters of meditation there are you you stay on the the meditation wave for a couple of minutes and then you know you're off again on a, on a thought tangent and you just you know you just come back and, and get back on it so so that's that's how i i view this um the process of meditation i think i think you just gotta you, you just have to be realistic and know that uh, that you're not going to be super meditation person as soon as you, as soon as you get on the cushion and maybe you never will be. I've certainly haven't mastered it, <laughs> you know, and I, but I keep getting on, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, I want to ask you about one, one other thing here before we uh, run out of time. And um as I mentioned before, before uh, starting the practice and, and before finding uh, your books here, I had for years been interested in Zen uh, as, as kind of a philosophy, and mostly that was through the, the music and particularly the writings of John Cage. And, uh, you know, I discovered yeah. that when I was in college, and then all through my whole study, master's degree, doctorate study, I, I you know, I sought out um, this kind of music, and, and uh, even I went to... Uh, Cincinnati to study with uh, Alan Addy and Jim Cully and Rusty Burge of the percussion group Cincinnati, who, you know, uh, who play this music and, and know it deeply, knew John Cage. And so I had this real interest in that already. And so, that was my understanding of zen was was through cage and then of course i would follow all of his references i would go and read dt suzuki or wh- whatever he was cross referencing in his writings yeah. um, but i understand that you recently did a concert in cincinnati with with my <laughs> yeah. teachers uh, with my yeah, teachers yeah. so um so could you talk a little bit about the nature of your relationship if if at all with with john cage and, and his work
1: well, it's it's uh, I, I wouldn't say I have that deep of a relationship, but I did get get asked a couple of months ago to to come out to Cincinnati and do this. Uh, uh, I was the Zen guy, so they they'd set up a performance of several pieces by John Cage, and they wanted me to kind of come in between the the pieces and talk about the different Zen aspects uh, that were related to the to the pieces we were. They were performing, and it was very, it was in a way a bit of a a cage performance in itself, and that it was a bit random and 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 unrehearsed. I mean, well, it was some parts were rehearsed. My parts weren't very rehearsed, but uh, Cage, Cage has been interesting to me. I can't say I'm an expert on his his workers' writing, but I I became aware of John Cage when I was in high school through. Reading stuff, um, reading interviews with Frank Zappa, who I was a huge Zappa fan, but at, at the time it was hard enough in in Wadsworth, Ohio, which isn't even in Akron. You know, it's the it's a suburb. It was hard enough to get a Zappa album, let alone a, a John Cage. So, so I ended up writing this essay about john cage based purely on reading about these pieces which i'd never heard Mm. uh and uh and kind of trying to imagine what they must have sounded like Uh, i mean you can imagine what the silent one sounds like pretty easily but uh, (laughs) but but maybe you can't and and i and i find that whole thing interesting you know especially that you know it's i guess his most famous piece is the one that's that's the uh the piano the piano player just comes out and opens the piano and doesn't play sure uh it's uh because uh, because in a way that must have been his response to to what Zen practice is like and 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 I've seen that uh, we the, they performed it twice in in uh, Cincinnati when I was there once arranged for piano and once arranged for string quartet and both times <laughs> nobody played the piano and none of the string players played yeah. but it was it was really interesting because there's so much going on you you uh, when you take away the music uh, there's a lot going on. There's people clearing their throats. There's people shuffling around nervously. There's there's uh, the performers on stage just sitting there, you yeah. know, and 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 it's it's this really interesting experience that makes you realize that there's a whole world of of you know we define certain things as music, but. Uh, but maybe our definition is too limited. you know maybe there's music uh, available everywhere if we'd only just start to listen to it. I, I really like Cage. I, I think one of his one of the things they, they said about him during that performance that I think was really important was the the humor uh, of his pieces. you know a lot of people, hear that and sort of imagine this stuffy academic but they they were showing some videos of him and he's he's he wasn't that at all he was you know he was a he was a you know he thought these things were just as funny as everybody else did and and he thought that was that laughing at those pieces some of his weirder pieces was a perfectly legitimate response to to the piece you know because that's that's natural you know that's how you respond to these you know some of these crazy uh, things he did
0: yeah yeah, totally. And, and all the, I mean, many, many photographs are Cage. He's got that wide grin, you know, clearly just laughing and, yeah. um, yeah, it, that's, it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating, fascinating, and a brilliant, brilliant man, you know, and artist. Um, it's, it's, uh, I've, I've read so many books about Cage and one of the things that always, uh, well, there's one writer, uh, James Pritchett, uh, has mm-hmm. a great book on John Cage, and it's all about. It's called "The Music of John Cage" is the name of the book. Okay. But in that book, he makes the point that Cage actually was a composer, and he often gets labeled as a sort of philosopher or um, a musical charlatan or something. But yeah. but he his the whole point of that book was no, actually Cage was a composer, and here's why. And he you know he lays out the whole uh, all of the reasons why. But um, it was pretty interesting. In 2012, we had the Cage's 100th birthday, you know, there were celebrations all over the place, and uh, that was a real time of uh, big celebration, a lot of things written about him and, and things, so I think we're only just now sort of coming to grips with— it, and. Not even, but starting to understand the kind of uh, ripple effect that he had in, in the music world and also in the visual arts and in writing yeah. and, and so many different places. But I I just wanted to ask you about that because I, uh, I knew that you had been up there for a concert and I thought that was an interesting uh, story.
1: Oh it was really fascinating and and I think the the Zen aspects of it are are important because he uh, he was trying to put that into it and and Zen itself is is hilarious. That's one of the things I don't understand about some of the writing, certainly not all of it, but a lot of the writing that you get if you go to a, you know your local book barn and look at the shelf where the Zen stuff is is put you know in the back of the store, in the bottom of the you know wherever it is. Uh, where my books are shelved, you know, you have to dig around for them. But uh, th- there's a lot of stuffiness and and kind of bloated sort of academic posturing that goes on when people write about Zen, and and I think they're missing the fact that it's very earthy and and funny and and you know all this all this it's almost slapstick sometimes you know you have people smacking each other in the face and that and and people going well this is the profound meaning of this is no the guy twisting another guy's nose it's the three stooges you know you got to get you (laughs) got to understand that this is not this is not nearly as as abstract and and uh intellectual as you want to make it sound
0: yeah yeah (laughs) Well, uh, we should probably wrap soon here. Um, normally I end the podcast, uh, as I, as I uh, said before, you know, the show has mostly, um, been uh, conversations with, uh, you know, artists or musicians, composers, this kind of thing I've had r- some writers on. And, um, so I normally end by asking the question, how does one live and sustain a creative life? So <laughs> I, I would, I would posit that for you.
1: Oh, Lord. Uh, That's that's my ongoing question. You know, you you if you I was going to say you choose this life, but I don't think you really choose it. I think you kind of get you get sort of thrown into it. And and it's I've done I've done both sorts of things in my life you know I've done desk jobs where where my hours are are very specific and what I'm going to get paid is pretty you know is pretty much I know uh, at the beginning of the year you know how much I'm going to end up with at the end of the year that kind of thing Uh, and and the creative uh, the creative work is isn't like that you kind of gotta you kind of got to figure it out and and the creativity just doesn't end with just writing the book or writing the piece of music or, or any of that. You've got to figure out well how I'm gonna, how am, how am I gonna sustain that? How am I gonna keep going with this as a as a lifestyle? Um, and that that's difficult at times, but it's it's I think a useful challenge. And it's one you know, it when I think about the choices I've made in life, I, I feel like I've I've made the right choice. Uh, but, uh, but there are times when I'm kind of going, oh my God, I wish I had a normal paycheck and a normal job, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so.
0: Okay. I've got one more question for you. Uh, in, in this newest book, in the, in the last chapter, uh, you, you sort of talk a little bit about what what is zen uh, you yeah. know you, you you deal with this question and you say and you have a quote here no religion philosophy or practice will ever mean precisely the same thing even to two people who sit side by side in the same temple for decades and yeah. and you go on from there and you you also write very eloquently in this last chapter about zen being a, a communal practice so yeah. given given these things as kind of a backdrop uh, mm-hmm. how what would your answer to the question B. Uh, what is what is Zen?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, it's it's hard to answer that. I, the, a lot of people like to hear a kind of poetic answer to that question, and I, I usually, you know, I'll give those people a kind of a historical answer. But I, I think really, it's it's a, a communal practice of individual inquiry is my new definition. So, so you are you're sitting and doing this meditative practice, which is very inward looking, you know, and it's, 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 it, 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 it's, it's kind of a lonely practice, but you in, you deliberately engage in it, maybe not all the time, but in regular intervals with a group of people. Like I'm going to go, uh, an, an hour from now, uh, I'm leading an, a Zen class here in Los Angeles, and I'm going to meet with, uh, you know, I don't know how many people will show up tonight. It's usually between 10 and 20. And uh, we'll uh, we'll sit together in, in silence for half an hour. Uh, and that's interesting because it's very different from sitting by yourself for half an hour. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't like to lay a lot of stuff on there about, feeling the vibes or any of that hippie nonsense but i i think maybe some of that hippie nonsense is true you know there's this kind of something that that is generated when a group of people come together for that and 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 one because you have a group of people coming together to do this you have to have certain rules and expectations and norms and things that are followed but uh, but those things are all secondary and i think most of the zen places i've Gone to have been have done a very good job of, of making sure that those aspects are secondary, that we just follow those rules and do those weird little practices and chants and whatnot just to uh, make the meditation practice happen rather than the other way around. So uh, I think that's what Zen is at its best.
0: Great. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really terrific to uh, get to spend some time with you. Yeah, thank you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.